For the week of January 31st, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 527, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, not Park City, Utah, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Hollyboob, California, I'm Michael Giltz. Ah, I see you've seen the, our new sign, Hollyboob. Yes, well, they claimed they were trying to bring attention to breast cancer awareness, so if that's what they were actually intending, good. Uh, people may have remembered from last week, I went to get a colonoscopy. Everything was great. No, no polyps to even check. None to clear out, none to check. So everything was clean, clean as a whistle, easy to do. So, you know, get tested. I'll be back in five years because I have a family history of colon cancer. If you don't, you may be able to get away with an at-home test. Talk to your doctor and look up that article in the New York Times about FIT, the home test. But whatever you do, get tested. Breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer. Good idea. Yeah, now you're, of course, referring to the fact that uh, they not only called attention to breast cancer, but they called attention to themselves. And these are protesters who decided to change the Hollywood sign to the Holly Boob sign. And they actually climbed that mountain, which is not easy to do, by the way, and changed the, the sign. Well, yes, I don't know if protesters is the word, but activists or, yeah. you know, ne'er-do-wells, who knows. But that's what they did. They wanted to bring awareness to breast cancer. We want to bring awareness to the entertainment news of the week. What are people going to hear about this time on our podcast? Well, you know, get settled in because when it rains, it pours. Okay. And, you know, for a while now we've had, you know, not, not, not a lot of news to talk about. And this week we have so much news to talk about that it might take a while. In fact, we will be uh, this week on Showbiz Sandbox. We're going to be thrilled. You might've heard me say Park City, Utah at the, the head of the show just a minute ago. Well, that's mm -hmm. because we're going to be talking about Film festivals like Sundance, they're back, even if, by the way, that's just digitally. And hey, the festival may be virtual, but the deals are very real indeed. Just ask Apple or Apple Plus. I can't tell whether it went to Apple Plus or Apple. We'll, we'll, we'll fill you in. A flurry of activity in the world of Me Too is also worth reporting on. Luke Besson dodged a bullet for the moment. Asia Argento went public with another rape allegation and comic Nick Cannon and golfer Justin Thomas show there are two sides to every apology tour. On Inside Baseball, we dive back into streaming. The end of the fiscal year brought some new subscriber info from the top streaming outlets like Disney+. Plus. Over at HBO Max, they asked for a do-over when it came to the viewing figures for Wonder Woman 1984, and Pixar's soul won't be happy. Plus, Netflix made a claim about Bridgerton that we're going to correct. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines, but first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gills to fill us in on last week's box office, but I am sure he will first talk about my stumbling over the Sundance intro in the first sentence of that intro. Not at all. We're looking at Worldwide Box Office. We pull our information from everywhere we can. Thank you for every all the readers who chip in info and say, this movie's in this country, that movie's in that country. We really appreciate it. Com score, where are you? Anyway, and you know what? This week, I, I noticed virtually no coverage of Worldwide Box Office. The trades for a while now have been consistent about covering Worldwide Box Office. They do a story on Monday or maybe Sunday night or Monday during the day at some point after the North American Box Office. They catch up on what's going on around the world. I didn't see that this week. I don't they, know they were all on. They were all on Robinhood trading GameStop and, and AMC <laughs> stock. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So anyway, we're looking at worldwide box office, and the number one film is the Chinese drama 
Big Red Envelopes. No, that's that romantic comedy sort of movie where yeah. a, two, a couple gets married so they can cash in on all the dough. Well, they, don't big really red they get fake married so that they can get all the big red envelopes full of cash. I didn't know that they got fake married. They could get married and then divorced. You know, I don't know what the deal was unless you speak Chinese. I don't think you know either. I, you know what? My Mandarin is a little rusty. And by rusty, I mean, I think I don't know any of it. <laughs> well, that movie grows $16 million this week. It's at $25 million and counting. Right below that is Soul, the Pixar film. It made another $14 million. It's at $85 million. So we expect it'll pass the $100 million mark before all is said and done. A far cry from the $1 billion mark you could hope for if the movie was a huge hit or the 500 to $700 million it would have made almost without you know, without question. Well, think I about never- it this way. I know that you, I know you want to plow through this, but if you think about it from, di- from an outsider's perspective, you know, a, a good movie like a soul or a, or an up or, uh, you know, a cars. Okay. I said good movie, but still they generate these lands in Disneyland. So they have cars land in Disneyland and Disney. Well, not always, but yes. So think about what soul could have done. You could have had a jazz club at some of these. <laughs> I'm serious. Like when you really think about what, what it could, like if it had turned into a cultural event, but instead it was streaming. And I don't know that, that the soundtrack is selling or that it's as much a cultural event as it would have been. I'm sure it isn't. The world, the box office is a great launch to make something a big hit. Bridgerton is a big hit. It's only on streaming. It doesn't have to begin in theaters, but it works really well. It's working for Shockwave 2, the Chinese thriller starring Andy Lau. It grows $12 million this week and passed the $200 million mark. Plus, actor Andy Lau went on social media for the first time. He launched a public account. I forget what platform it was, but it exploded. Everybody wanted to be his friend. At number four is A Little Red Flower, the Chinese film that's sort of their spin on The Fault in Our Stars. That too made $12 million. That's at $225 million in counting. Finally, a new movie. It's the Denzel Washington Rami Malek crime drama, The Little Things. It opened to $8 million worldwide. Right below that is Wish Dragon, that U.S.-Chinese animated co-production starring the voice of Jackie Chan. That's going to be on Netflix here in the U.S. It made $6 million and is at $20 million worldwide. Then there's another Chinese film, Warm Hug, the broad comedy, that made another $5 million. The Crudes, A New Age, made $4 million, featuring the voice of the late Cloris Leachman. That, too, passed the $200 million mark. Uh, it's opening in the UK this week, so we'll have to see uh, how it does there. The Marksman, that Liam Neeson thriller, that made $3 million, but it's only at $9 million and counting. You want to talk big numbers, let's talk about the Japanese film, Demon Slayer, the movie, Mugen Train, or Infinity Train. That made another $2 million, but it's at $386 million worldwide, the biggest Japanese film of all time, and it's going to be coming to the U.S. I can't wait to check it out. A Hustle Bustle New Year. It's not the New Year yet in China, but it will be on the 12th. I believe that kicks off that holiday, Um, but it made $2 million this week. It's at $6 million and counting. We'll have to see if there's renewed interest next week or whether it's already sort of played itself out. Wonder Woman 1984 has almost played itself out. That's at $150 million worldwide. And that's about it, really. The last two movies, $2 million and $1 million. But the Chinese New Year is almost here. It takes place around mid-February. This year, it's February 12th, the year of the ox. It lasts 16 days, but only the first seven are a public holiday. So from February 11th to February 17th, 
just like in the U.S. and other parts of the world during the Christmas holiday, there's a long span where families are together and everyone goes to the movies. However, there's a wrinkle. Chinese theaters are clamping back down on occupancy levels. They're down to 50% or less in some areas that are especially being affected by an upsurge in COVID, and they're not serving food or drink in a lot of those places. So that's going to hurt the theaters in terms of sales, and it's certainly going to hurt the box office. They won't be making the numbers they were hoping for. Well, I know we're going to talk about HBO Max later, and I know that we're talking about China and COVID now. Uh, At Sundance, something we will also be talking about in a moment, uh, there was a documentary by the filmmaker Nanfu Wang from, uh, she did One Child Nation. Right. And she uh, did a documentary this year called In the Same Breath. And this is a documentary that was made with filmmakers in Wuhan that sent her footage Uh, She's from Wuhan. And of course, they're going to be, HBO Max is going to be airing this or streaming this at some point. Uh, How was it? It was absolutely amazing. I mean, it was a very pointed documentary at both the US and China. And let's face it, basically what what you saw was a whole bunch of people in China saying, is it true that they're saying that only 3,000 people died here? That's, I mean- that can't possibly be right. Right. It basically shows uh, the Chinese government lying to its people about the severity of the illness and its impact. And then it pivots halfway through to say, ah, and the Trump administration did the same. So don't be so cute. And they can show lots of footage of Donald Trump saying, oh, it's going to disappear. Don't worry about it. We got a few cases. They're all going to go away. It's no big deal. Don't wear masks. We got to reopen up. So they're pointing out the similarities between that administration, uh, the Trump administration, the Republican Party, and the Chinese government. Not a flattering comparison, but the footage is there. You can watch it. Yeah, but and it's, may, it's, you, it's less about the politics and more about, about... Well, it's about the bungling of the, of the, of yes, the COVID crisis because of correct. a government that wants to lie to its people. So it is political. They saw it, the Chinese government saw it as bad politics to let the world know that they had this virus and how bad it was. They yep. did some good things like sharing the, the gene sequence very early on, if I'm pronouncing that properly, what they actually did. So there was some good stuff that was done. And a lot of brave people in Wuhan and other parts did wonderful, important work. But the two governments did, in fact, lie because they saw it as dangerous for their political standing. So To give you some sense as to the, the meta, I don't know what you would call it, how meta that movie was. In the beginning of the movie, she's in Wuhan, okay, in January. And she leaves visiting her, husband, her family, right? Visiting her family. She, she leaves on January 22nd. Okay. They lock the city down on January 23rd. She said she was leaving Nanfu Wang that because she had a, a, a professional engagement. It only dawned on me later that, oh, wait a second. She was on the jury at Sundance last year. <laughs> That's why she was coming back. She had to be in Park City, Utah. And less than a year later, she's managed to make this movie. That is absolutely amazing to me. In fact, so amazing how quick that was. And then Ben Mizrich said, oh, you think that's fast? Hold my beer. Yeah, I don't think that's fast for necessarily. I mean, you can spend years, of course, crafting a documentary film, or you can get it out in weeks and months. Right. 
but, but uh, that was my way of getting to Ben Mesrich and <laughs> the well, GameStop we, of it all. Well, you, yeah, yeah, you know, you're not going to see that movie in AMC theaters. It's going to come to HBO Max. But AMC stock did have a great week because of this uh, craziness and day trading. Their stock doubled after good news of new funding stability. Their stock went way back up to the peak of where it was in 2018. For a brief minute, it was at almost $20 a share. It was at $2 a share just a few weeks ago. Now it's fallen back down to about $7.80 cents a share uh, it's crazy and it's all tied up in gamestop and this whole nonsense this crazy thing you can read ten thousand articles analyzing what it all means but what does it mean for hollywood it means this david versus goliath if you want to put it that way or these out of control lunatics if you want to put it another way it's a good story and writer ben mesrick has a book proposal out already called the anti-social network about the gamestop versus wall street tale mgm has already optioned it for the movies but wait, Netflix has a competing project with another writer in talks and other people attached. It's crazy. It's not that crazy, is it? There have been competing projects on a lot no. of stuff in Hollywood. Right. In fact, there are two competing Buck Rogers movies. So, you know, it happens. <laughs> and, and in fact, there were there were competing uh, versions of Crisis in the Hot Zone. This yeah. is the, the pandemic movie. This was way back in the 90s when the Ebola virus almost escaped from the CDC. It almost, they, they lost track of it and they didn't know where a certain uh, sample was. And they thought if it gets out, it could really just wipe out populations. And right. so there were competing movies. I think of Dustin course. Hoffman wound up starring in one of them. Right. Uh, now, do you want to explain who Ben Mesrich is? No. The author? No. Who cares? Well, I mean, his we're stuff done. actually gets made. Well, yeah. He's, an, he's, an, he's a name writer, yes. Yeah. And, so, and you know, really Netflix the only thing and MGM aren't screwing around with nobodies. Yeah, they're... They're people with name, and 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 that's why he has a book option out, and they've already optioned the movie rights because they right. take him seriously. I'm not saying he's not important, but yeah. I think um, the only thing we could probably add, because we're not about to start explaining the short well, squeeze, stop. but the only thing we could add here is that AMC went to uh, at the market. Uh, they had an at the market offering, but they finished it on, uh, I think it was Wednesday morning, right? So they did it Tuesday. They closed it Wednesday morning. If they had just waited six hours, they could have literally gone from making $300 million of found money, which they actually need right now, to $900 million. That is well, how fast the, the stock was moving on that Well, day. they also wiped out $600 million in debt through luck. A private equity firm had an IOU from AMC. AMC owed them $600 million. Right. They converted that corporate IOU into stock. So instead of AMC owing them a penny, they now own stock in AMC, and any losses or gains are theirs alone. So that was another big win for AMC. They got a big level of funding. They had that $600 million IOU disappear, gone. So that they're, they're in much better financial shape they were than a week ago. So thank you, day traders. <laughs> yes, exactly. A <laughs> uh, lot of stuff happening in social justice. Sometimes if we mention a case or an allegation, we like to follow up uh, whether it's you know good, bad, or just to let people know, it's not fair to say someone accused them of this if some other news comes out later. So we mentioned Luc Besson before. He is not facing new rape charges as of yet. He testified in French court. That would be the well-known director of the Fifth Element and stuff. He did it behind closed doors, and that doesn't preclude something happening later, but it's certainly good when they don't immediately charge you with something. So he had his say, and they have not said, oh, no way, we're, we're going forward with this. Doesn't mean they won't, but that's where they're at. Under Harvey Weinstein, of course, his sexual misconduct settlement was confirmed by a judge. 
some of the women who were involved in this class action suit, if that's the proper term, they were not happy with this settlement. They didn't think it was fair. They wanted to have more of a day in court. Most of them did. The judge has gone along with them. Uh, the bad news is that the suits involved, the lawyers and everybody else will get $26 million, while the women whose lives were impacted will split $17 million. But I know for them, it's more important to have their day in court and to have him have to admit it and to pay out money. That's uh, the first and most important thing to them. Asia Argento was one of the women who went public about Weinstein's uh, sexual misconduct with her. Uh, she now says that director Rob Cohen raped her using a date rape drug. He denies it, <laughs> needless to say. But actor Evan Rachel Wood has also come forward. For years, she has hinted and suggested and implied that her ex-fiance Marilyn Manson was very abusive. And she has gone on to be a major advocate, testifying before Congress, things like that. She now says publicly that he raped and physically assaulted her mentally and physically for years. They began the relationship when she was 19 and he was 38. Since she did this, at least three other women have publicly come forward and identified themselves and accused Manson of sexual misconduct. He's been dropped by his record label, cut from the TV series American Gods and another TV show called Creep Show both of which he had some smaller guest appearances, and he's been dropped by his agency, CAA. He denies it all, though oddly a little blandly, not even naming Wood by name. Yeah. So <laughs> CBS has launched an independent probe into widespread allegations of racist and sexist behavior at the local level of their CBS-owned TV stations. We've been talking about CBS for years. They've had a really bad corporate culture, and that clearly and probably filtered down to their TV stations. When the people at the top are being abusive eh, the people lower than them will get the message that's okay in fact that may help all these people and that all came out through a meg james article in the los angeles times i mean she did this expose on this particular person this executive it was a two-part expose and within 24 hours he was put on leave which right. is another way of saying like he's probably not coming back right so you want to listen to women you don't automatically believe everything everyone says, but you need to take them seriously and listen and see what's going on. And then the people who have made missteps, if they've perhaps made some untoward comment or done something more serious, you know, the more serious your, your, your problems, the harder it is to come back. But you can make amends. You can move forward. This idea that everybody's canceled immediately is nonsense. We have three people, Nick Cannon, golfer Justin Thomas, and country star Morgan Wallen. I hope I'm saying his name right. Nick Cannon is back on track to a degree after a year in the woodshed, after an apology tour. He was dropped like a hot potato by one and all when he made deeply ignorant and offensive anti-Semitic remarks. And since then, he's done the usual, if you want to be cynical. He apologized wholeheartedly. He met with rabbis. He went on a learning tour, if you like. And hopefully it was sincere and genuine. But in any case, he's back on the air with his syndicated radio show, though not yet back on Power 106 in L.A., though that's likely that will happen. His delayed daytime talk show is back on track, and he'll probably return to MDV's Wild and Out soon as well. You know, we don't need to look into his heart. We don't need to know if he's sincere. He said incredibly offensive and stupid stuff. He's paid somewhat of a price. His career was derailed for a while, and he's made all the proper motions. If he doesn't keep continuing to say things publicly, he'll be okay. We don't need to know that he's somehow, you know, come to Jesus and realized what he said was wrong and ignorant. We just need him, you know, you're going to want to work, want to be a public figure. You can't get away with that stuff anymore. And if he doesn't repeat it or make other hateful comments or do other hateful things, he'll probably be okay. 
Justin Thomas, however, not so much. Golfer Justin Thomas was videotaped. You know, he's playing a, a game, a professional game. All the players are miked, and he missed a putt, and he muttered an offensive slur about gay people at himself, and he said, faggot. Because I can't like I, that's not even like I mean I, I would that get you actually, know what, it is <laughs> no no what I don't understand is I don't know why that's the word you would use I would get in so much trouble if I played golf not only because I'm really bad at it but because I'm really bad at it man one profane word after another would be coming out of my mouth they'd be happy to have me say something that they that that wasn't a four letter word <laughs> exactly I would throw all my clubs in the water i have no patience <laughs> for golf but he said it he immediately afterwards when he realized he said it and it was heard on the air he made a very wholehearted apology said it was ignorant stupid he doesn't think like that he doesn't know why he said that he needs to learn why he said that and why he had that word in his head said everything you could want someone to say and as far as i know he has no history of other hateful comments in public or private I have no idea, but I looked around and I saw nothing. So he doesn't have a pattern or a history. This seemed to be a one-off thing. If he hadn't been miked, nobody would have heard it. Doesn't mean it's okay to say it, but at least you wouldn't be in trouble. Nonetheless, he was dropped by one of his sponsors, Ralph Lauren. They're very progressive, and they said, we're out. And I feel like they overreacted. Unless there's a pattern, unless he does it again, they can say, hey, we need you to do this. We need you to do that. Meet with this group. You know, golf. They've got the LPGA tour. They have lots of lesbian fans. There are gay men who watch regular golf. And you don't want people in slurring and insulting people who might be watching on TV. Very understandable. If it was one time, quiet, unintended, not said, you know, at himself, and he doesn't do it again, I feel like, you know, you, I think that was a little too hasty. Not the case, finally, for country star Morgan Wallen. He has the biggest album in the United States right now in any genre. He's a country star, and his album is huge, probably the biggest country album since Garth Brooks in the 1990s. It is a monster double album, a huge hit. We talked about him and his checkered past. Well, it happened again. A video of him using a racial slur, the big one, surfaced. He was not directing it at other people. He was saying in the stupid white boy, oh, I listen to rap music and hey, my, you know, my N-word, how you doing, man? You know, that sort of thing. But you don't get to say that anymore. Sorry, dude. Uh, don't care how much rap you listen to. And it's not the first time he said it. Never in hate directed at another person, as far as I know. Nonetheless, you're talking the biggest music act in the country right now. And the across-the-board action by the country establishment is kind of shocking because he's had other problems, bar fights, um, obnoxious comments, other uses of this racial slur. Everybody dropped the hammer. Top radio stations dropped him. iHeartRadio stopped playing his music. Uh, what else is it? Uh, his record label has suspended his contract indefinitely. Country music television is not playing wow. his music videos. Spotify has removed his music from playlists. You can go to Spotify and play his album. I had it on my spot list playlist and was going to listen to it, but they won't promote the music on their playlists. That is kind of stunning, especially for the country world, because it ain't something they were very sensitive about before, but they see a real big price to be paid if a white guy like Morgan Wallen keeps doing stuff like this, and it's not the first time. And he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I was an idiot and got drunk and went out and partied right before you know, I went on Sunday Night Live during a pandemic at a bar without a mask on. I apologize. Then he does it again. Then he gets in a bar brawl, and it's his latest use of the N-word on video. And they're like, we're done. We're out. I don't think his career is necessarily over, but it's shocking to see how much of a reaction it's engendered in the country world, which typically hasn't cared that much. Well, and, and so fast. 
too. Exactly. I mean, yeah, oh my God, within hours, exactly. And yeah. that's the, sort of the nonsense. People say, it's cancel culture. It's ca-. No, it's you're a public person. If you say something, it will have consequences. You know, yeah. 70 years ago, if you said, I'm gay, you'd lose your job and maybe be thrown in jail. Today, you might get more followers on social media. Times change. Today, Morgan Wallen uses that word. He's going to pay a price in public. Do you not think there should be consequences for what people say? It's not cancel culture. It's people paying right. a price for things that they say that can offend a lot of people. And it ain't good business for his record label or radio stations and others, even if they have a mostly white audience, to be seen as that insultingly ignorant and offensive. So, Well, and as you saw from Nick Cannon, it's not cancel culture because there is a way back. Now, right. maybe not for everyone necessarily. Not, not, if, not if you keep doing it, Morgan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, your, your internet, you, sometimes you're cutting in and out and there's a little bit of a delay. And you know what? I'm just glad that last week and over the, over the weekend, my internet wasn't out. Is my internet cutting in and out? Yeah, a little bit. But that, that really, I, uh, you, you know, every once in a while we'll miss a word here or there. But that's, you know. That's not good. That doesn't usually happen, does it? No. All right. It's probably me and my mic. Well, keep talking. Why are you happy? Because you went to Sundance. That's right. And I have to t- tell you, uh, you know, I hadn't been on a plane in a, a long time, but uh, and I still haven't, by the way. Um, so here's the deal. I went to Sundance. It was virtual this year. It was held uh, in Park City and at various satellite locations. But for the most part, everybody stayed home and watched the selections, which were I think there were 144 selections out of 14,000 entrants. Uh, most of them, I think there were 70 feature films. Normally there's, you know, two, 300 feature films. And by virtual, I mean, literally nobody really went to park city this year and not to, even Robert Redford. Well, I think they did have like a, a first day press conference, but, uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, there was, I think there was one venue in park city showing films. Uh, normally there's, you know, half a dozen or more showing film and big venues. Uh, now they, they did everything on a platform that they themselves created with the help of Shift 72 out of New Zealand. And uh, it worked pretty well. They tried to mirror the festival. And what I mean by that is they had blocks of time in which you could see films. So you had to start a film at a certain time and you had to finish it within four hours. They had Q&As online. Uh, You could get locked out of a screening if you didn't reserve it early enough. Oh, that's 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 silly. It seems silly, but yet it worked. And in the end, I think everybody got to see just about everything they wanted to. I didn't see the movie How It Ends, this uh, Zoe mm-hmm. Lister-Jones movie, uh, because just the, the first screening and the second screen, it just didn't work out. But every movie that I had a conflict for, I ultimately was able to see. Now, I didn't leave my living room. And I will tell you that um, being home with teenage daughters, not an ideal situation. I mean, you'd think, <laughs> now I have a great screening setup. I try to mirror the the theatrical experience as much as possible. But it's just not a very good experience. Well, not it's not an ideal experience to could sit you on- Could you watch something at like midnight yes, or two in the morning? that part was good. Oh, good. So they gave you like a day where like you wouldn't have to. They said, okay, Tuesday, Wednesday, you can watch this movie. And when you start it, you have four hours, but you don't have to start at 10 a.m. or something. Correct. So, well, yes, you do. If it's the first screening, if it's the first screening, you have an hour or something like that to start it. And Mm. then you have four hours to finish it. The second screening, you had 48 hours as a journalist, as a journalist. Yeah. 
Right. So there were three big movies. There were three uh, big it, movies, but here's the thing about this year, and I talked to a couple of people about it, is that this is the first year that Tabitha Jackson is the uh, the the new director of the festival. So she's you know John Cooper re- kind of stepped down last year. Tabitha Jackson was was hired, and what people are saying is that this year was uh, the selections were far more commercial. I don't know that I always would agree with that, but there were three big selections that you you want to talk about. Coda which was the very first film that screened at the festival. So on the opening night, that's what would have been in the big Eccles Center there. It was a whiplash moment. And by that, I mean when you were watching it and afterwards you kind of went, oh my God, this is the movie that everybody's going to talk about. <laughs> this is the movie that if you weren't crying by the end of it, you there is something, you're not human. Uh, and yet it was incredibly formulaic. And yet- you don't even notice that. Like you only notice it afterwards. You're like, oh my God, I totally fell for it. Um, it's a movie, uh, Marley Matlin stars in it. Uh, she is deaf. Two of the other actors are deaf. It takes place and is shot in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Uh, the uh, actress, Amelia Jones, plays their only hearing child and she is kind of their translator to the world. They work on a fishing boat and they're starting uh, their you know commercial fishing business and she wants to go off to the Berkeley School of Music, but of course, how could she do that and leave her family behind when nobody, you know, she is basically their ears. Uh, a right. very this touching movie, movie. This movie won the Audience Award, the Big Grand Jury Award, the Directing Award. It also won Best Ensemble, and the other two films did that in documentary and world cinema. But this is a fiction film. It's a child of deaf adults. Is that what CODA stands Correct. for? Correct. Yes. Right. And Directed idea, by Sean Hedder. It's directed by Sean Hedder, I should point and out. And only in Sundance could you think a movie about mostly deaf people signing is somehow wildly commercial. You may see this film and think, yes, this has commercial potential, but believe me, nobody made this movie thinking, we're going to have a blockbuster. You know, it's like, it may be commercial, but that doesn't mean it's a commercial film. You're making a film about deaf people, it's instantly not a commercial film. It is a labor of love. Whatever happens to it is great. And that's the artistry and the talent and everything. But no, movies about deaf people are not box office gold. Snap your fingers. Here comes the money. Comic book superheroes are commercial movies. Movies about deaf people are not commercial. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's about deaf people, but it doesn't really. I mean, it's got. It's a movie where people are signing. It is not some layup commercial hit. <laughs> it just isn't. I, well, let's let's see how it. I'm saying it it'll make a lot. No, I'm not saying it won't make a lot of money. But you know, it's like Sling Blade. That ain't a commercial movie. No. It just made a lot of money. Movies can make a lot of money, but you got your topic is deaf. I've seen movies about transgender people. Oh, you're just trying to you know make a lot of money. It's like no, <laughs> that's not really. It doesn't work that way. It must have been very hard to make. But what did it cost? I've heard it costs $10 million, and I've heard maybe it costs $20 million. I don't know how with that story topic and the setting. Uh, you know, Marley Matlin's you know, tab can't be that high. So there's an argument about how much it costs. But it was the movie. You said it got huge buzz, and it was a big bidding war, and the streamers are the ones who were fighting it out at the end, weren't they? Yes, Apple uh, wound up getting it for a record-breaking $25 million. Now, uh, that left focus features and all of the the usual suspects, the A24s, all of the the indie distributors. They were out very early on. They were basically like, "What? It's over ten million dollars? Yeah, no, we're not. We're not biting." 
But the it was F- down to Apple and Amazon, and it yeah. beats the previous record of $22.5 million set by Palm Springs. That movie ended up going to Hulu one or two years ago. So Palm Just Springs did it. Just were, they hap- were they happy with that investment? I don't know. We, I- we don't have numbers, so we can say, wow, it did this, or it brought new people to Hulu, or people who watched Hulu and saw that movie are thrilled and glad with their subscription. I don't know how to measure a hit when it's on a streaming service because we don't have verifiable numbers that we can look at. Yeah, and I guess um, this year, especially, the films are important, and here's why. The Hollywood machine has kind of ground to a halt. They're not making big, giant blockbusters. Yes, they're making some, but they're not making 12 at a time. And so a lot of these studios and a lot of these, uh, these distributors went there saying, we need one, maybe two to fill in some gaps for when this year is when we, everybody goes back and we get that big rush of movies. Afterwards, we're going to need some movies. So what will they be? What are next year's big buzzed about, you know, artistic movies going to be? And I would say, now you said that Coda wasn't, um, a, I, I'm saying it can be a hit. I'm saying this was oh, not no. a movie that was made with huge commercial potential in mind. Yes. So let me talk to you about another big buzzed about film that was a buzzed about film beforehand. Okay. Going into the festival. And I read the description and went, oh my God, that is so not commercial. And here it is. It's called Mass. It's by a, an actor, director, Fran, Fran Crowns, uh, a guy who uh, is a Broadway uh, actor as well. It's a chamber piece drama starring Jason Isaacs, Martha Plimpton, Ann Dowd, and Reed Burney. Uh, the subject matter is Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton are married. They go to meet Ann Dowd and Reed Burney at a, at a church. The Almost the entire film is set in one room and the married couple is going to, they had a son that was killed in a mass shooting that the other couple's son instigated. And they, 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 in, they intend to meet them, don't they? And talk about it. Or is it just happenstance? No, right? no, no. They come to a, for a meeting to talk to the family. And I thought, Oh, this is going to be a grueling. Why am I watching? And yet it totally works. I don't know why it works. I don't know. There's another film that I'll mention later on. Same thing. Pleasure. You'll hear a lot about this film. It's a different film. It's by a Swedish director, Nina Thyberg, or Nina Thyberg, I should say. It is set in the porn world. Okay. It stars Sophia Capel and a whole list of porn stars that, uh, you know, it's basically a behind the scenes. It's, it's a boogie nights with a girl kind of, but mm-hmm. unlike boogie nights, I didn't think the story was all that compelling. And I thought that the reason people were talking about it is because as the Hollywood reporter said, it's kind of like sex tourism, cinematic sex tourism. I thought that was a very good, um, a, a very, well, I, I don't not, know how you're going to, it's not a fun movie. It doesn't make the porn industry look fun and exciting no. the way to a degree boogie nights did. It's much more a harsh look at the industry. Right. It's about this uh, this actress who comes, you know, Sophia Capel comes to the U.S. to star in her first porn film, and then she gets involved in the porn world and what that what that's like. And it chips away at your soul, whereas Boogie Nights is a movie where making porn looks like a blast, but they end up doing too much drugs and getting involved in other stuff. But the actual porn stuff looks like fun, whereas right. this movie, they're like, no, this is not a fun world. Don't kid yourself. What was fun, at least a little bit, it was a little flat, was Together Together. Nicole Beckwith directs a film about a single man in his 40s who is played by Ed Helms, and he wants to have a have a child, so he hires a 26-year-old surrogate played by Patty Harrison to carry his child. Hijinks ensue. Now, they have a platonic relationship, and it's about how they grow closer over time by having this, like, you know, 
weird relationship. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a fine film. It's it's exactly the kind of film you would expect to to be at Sundance. Uh, the same could be said for Jockey, actually, and this is a good movie. It's about a film. It's a film by director Clint Bentley, whose father was a jockey. The film is shot at a real racetrack using real jockeys, except for three actors, and that uh, one of whom was Molly Parker, who plays a a horse trainer, and the other is Clifton Collins Jr., who plays a middle aged jockey who has a son show up, or or supposedly, you know, his um, one of the other jockeys says, "I'm your son," and then you know the story progresses. So this middle aged jockey, he's kind of at the end of his career. It is really good, and Clifton Collins Jr., who won the acting award at this year's Sundance, does a great job. Those two, it's phenomenal. Those two. Together. So it was it was fun to watch the movies. You were you felt like the interface worked well, and they gave you enough flexibility so that you could do what you wanted and see almost everything you did. How would you say the crop overall was? Did it feel like a good commercial crop in terms of yes, movies were picked up, and you think they can make money and be good uh, good fare for movie screens or I guess streamers? Well, I would say you know like there's Prisoners of the Ghostland. Have you heard about this film? You must. I've have heard, heard about them all. I've heard about them all. Okay. Well, this movie is off the charts. Like stupid, insane. It stars Nicolas Cage, directed by Shion Sono out of Japan. I'm not even going to bother going into it. Uh, look it up. But you asked about the crop of movies. You had movies like Passing from Rebecca Hall, black and white, mm-hmm. beautifully shot, based on a novel by Nella Larson, set in the, I guess, the 20s. Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega star. It's a wonderfully eloquent movie. And yes, that movies like that, surely from last year, it felt very similar. But then you have a movie like Hive. You said that there were some big movies. This is the one that won the World Cinema Prize. It won uh, the all three. It won the Audience Award, the Grand Jury Award, and the Directing Award. And I can tell you nobody saw it. Nobody was talking about this movie. I saw this movie. And I saw it the day that it, you know, yesterday. I saw it yesterday. How can you know who's talking about it? You were at home in your living room. Because, the, well, because, well, <laughs> I'm I'll asking. get to that. I'm, I'm wondering. <laughs> I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Trust you were, me. You were, text, you were texting a lot. No, no, no. There, well, first of all, there's Twitter. Okay. Number one. Okay. Number two, uh, I, I will talk about New Frontier in just a second. But this is a movie, this this movie Hive. It's directed by Blerta Bascioli. Uh, Bless it, you. Yeah, exactly. It's set in Kosovo after the Kosovo War. It uh, follows the story of a woman whose husband is missing, and of course they're destitute. Her, uh, she's kind of raising honeybees for the honey to sell. The bees aren't producing as much. She has to start a business in a very patriarchal society. The men do not like this, but there are all these widows, and it's about how the women kind of come together. It was one of those quietly amazing movies. And when it ended, you were like, oh my God, that was kind of amazing. And I never, I took a flyer on it. I thought this could be great or it could be, and it was really, really good. Very well-made movie. Um, Variety called it a solid and sober film. Screen Daily said it was a firm audience favorite. Yes. Hmm? Now, but yeah, so overall, did you feel like if you had gone or you were, you went, you spent the time, was it a good year at Sundance? Was it a great year? Was it an okay year? For what they had to work with? No, was, no, no, it no. It was really, it's really good. For, not, I, not on a curve. Oh, I'm not on a curve? I would say yeah. uh, I thought last year was better. There were better years, dramatically speaking, but the films were solid. So I would not, I would say this was a good year. 
Well, the one film I really wanted to see was a documentary. I don't think you did. It's called Soul Summer, a labor of love from Questlove, the drummer. That won the Audience and Grand Jury Award for documentary films. And boy, did I want to see this. It's about a series of concerts in, uh, in Brooklyn, in New York City. And footage was shot. Every major black star was there. Uh, lots of people. It was a great scene. And the footage just sat unused for years and years and years. 50 years later, they finally used the footage, got all the rights, and made it happen. It really captures the era as well as the music, just the same way Woodstock captured uh, its era. So they originally called it the Black Woodstock, but that's to sort of say, well, it's just Woodstock. But it's like, no, no, it's its own thing. So I think calling it Soul Summer really captures the film. And I can't wait to see it. So I beg your pardon, Summer of Soul, and I can't wait to see it. Yeah, um, uh, I, I purposefully didn't see it because I thought, well, that's getting picked up. I don't need to see it here. Also, it conflicted with CODA, so I couldn't see it because they were on Ooh. at the same time. So now, one thing that Sundance is known for, there's two two major things that they're known for other than the you know dramatic competitions, and that's documentaries. Documentaries every year, they come out of Sundance, and they are usually you know, the good ones are shortlisted for the Academy Awards by the following year. This year, there are uh, at least two I want to bring your attention to. There was a movie about the presidential election in Zimbabwe in 2018 called President. And this Danish filmmaker, Camilla Nielsen, she is a fly on the wall of the opposition party. And for those who don't know, Mugabe was the, you know, basically dictator for 38 years in Zimbabwe. He is overthrown or kind of pushed out of power by his his uh, right-hand man, Emerson Ningangwa, and uh, there's an election. It's supposedly free and fair. And this, uh, the opposition party, the MDC, Movement for Democratic Change, uh, headed by Nelson Chamisa, they give him a run for his money, and in fact, probably won that election, but then come the soldiers. And it it mirrored exactly what happened in the U.S. in terms of there were riots, there was, you know, elect, you know election fraud that they, you know, claims of election well, it fraud. Mirror, it didn't mirror exactly. Well, it, well <laughs> that, yes, correct. It obviously didn't mirror exactly, but... <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's a little difference when you... Anyway... But then there's, you know, there's, here's the filmmakers being shot at in this riot. Cut to Sabaya by Ogre Irori, a director who basically uh, followed Yazidi volunteers, volunteers as they went into ISIS camps with 70,000 ISIS uh, followers, trying to find the Yazidi women and children that were kidnapped and abducted as, and being used and sold as sex slaves. And they did it with infiltrators and they would have to go at night. Literally, the filmmaker was being shot at. Literally. Both of those filmmakers, I mean, it's, it was phenomenal. Those documentaries were kind of embedded documentaries. They were fantastic. I wanted to highlight one documentary for you, Michael, and that is this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Misha and the Wolves, by the way, this story about mm-hmm. a Holocaust survivor. It's going to be a on memoir. Ne- and, yeah, yeah. Then, it's, then it's like, yeah, not so much. Yeah. You know what? Just remember Misha and the Wolves. You'll see it on Netflix. Watch it on Netflix. It's worth it. Searchers. I don't know whether, whether you'll ever see this film, Michael, but it's by Pacho Velez. This movie I should not like. You should not like. Nobody should like this movie. All it is is people staring into the camera, looking directly at the audience, Michael. They're looking at you and talking <laughs> about they're going through the profiles on Tinder, on Grinder, on Match.com, and talking about which 
people they like and which they don't like and swipe left and swipe right. However, they use that Errol Morris and Teratron type thing uh-huh. where, where you can see overlaid on their faces what they're looking at. And they're like, nah, I don't like that guy. I, you know, I don't like guys who do this, or I don't like men or women who have that. You know, 75, he's looking for 50-year-old. Of course he's looking for a 50-year-old. You know, like it, was, <laughs> it was one of those movies you're like, how is this working? This should not work. Speaking of not working, here's something that shouldn't work. You asked me how I knew what people were talking about. Mm-hmm. Every year, the other thing Sundance is known for is New Frontier. It's a section of the festival that has some far out experimental works. It's really veered hard into VR, AR works lately. Lots of museum set pieces kind of thing. And this year, they decided that at New Frontier, they were going to create a lounge and a gallery where you could create an avatar dressed in your Sundance little outfit. uh, So everybody kind of looked the same, except you could put your face on the avatar a profile picture and walk around and meet other avatars and meet people. And when <laughs> and you looked at you and they said, yeah, no, I don't like guys like that who wear their badge. Yeah. You know, <laughs> swipe right. No, the best part was, so I saw Eric Cohn from uh, IndieWire, Right. And I was like, Oh, I'll go over and say hello to Eric. And when you walk into a group where there's like a little chat bubble, you can enter a chat, what it was known as a chat group. And you had to accept it. You had to say, yes. Sometimes there was two people. Sometimes it was just one. Sometimes it was like, you know, 10 people all talking. And you could see when you did that, all of a sudden you could see your video camera turned on and your avatar had a video head. It was amazing. <laughs> and so I go and I'm about to say hello to Eric Cohn. And he literally said, Oh, guys, I have to run. I just saw somebody pass by uh, that I've been meaning to catch up with. Because literally, <laughs> as you're talking yeah. to people, you could see other avatars walking past around the quote unquote bar. It was the best example of a virtual event. Hangout. Yeah, that Hangout. I have seen. It was phenomenal. And that's from the same company? Did they, did they create that Hangout as well? I do not know. I've been trying to figure out who did this because it worked. Yes, it was a little second lifey, you know, where, you know, that game mm-hmm. where you, but it really, everybody was there for the same reason. They were all talking about the movies, what they'd seen, what they hadn't seen. That's how I knew nobody saw Hive because it screened late in the festival and not a lot of people saw it. Well, great reviews from Variety, Film Threat, and Screen International if you went to Rotten Tomatoes, so that's interesting to see. It's gotten good reviews from the people who saw it. That happens. You know, you go to a fest, and at the, the you see a movie, and you think it's the biggest movie around because you and your two roommates saw it, but most people didn't. And so they're shocked when the jury says, this is the best film, because they've seen a lot of them, and they know. I do wonder, though, if we were all there in Park City, whether Koto... Yeah would have won all of those awards because usually what winds up happening is there's some pushback. Too once a commercial. Yeah, $25 million. It didn't deserve $25 million. And so they try and spread the love around a bit. So they'll say, okay, Coda, you get the audience award, but somebody else gets the the grand jury prize. And and nope. It's it's a different dynamic, but isn't it voted on by the jury? So it's not, yes. it's, they're isolated. So it's not, you know, it's dynamic in terms of what you think, but not what other people think and certainly not the jury. But we do know it's award season and come 2022, we'll probably be talking about Summer of Soul and CODA. But right now we're talking about the big movies that are vying for the top prizes. The National Board of Review came out strong for Spike Lee and The Five Bloods. Yes. Best picture, best director, La Lorna, was best foreign film soul was best animated film so a lot of stuff going on there and they had a a strong list of the top 10 movies 
along with the five bloods, the usual suspects, First Cow, Judas and the Black Messiah, the George Clooney film, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, things you would expect. And of course, Sound of Metal. I didn't list them all. Uh, but, you know, they, they've done that. And we've got the we've got the Golden Globes. Their list was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> People are like, how did they end up with these movies? Like, what? How was that? You know? So the acting awards are conspicuously white, uh, but the directing nominations are more diverse than ever. The streamers dominated. Netflix had 22 nominations in TV and film, three times more nominations than anyone else. Number two was Amazon with seven nominations. And three women are up for best director, so three out of the five nominations are women. And then they would have bizarre nominations, like the film Music by the pop star Sia. That got Best Musical Comedy. Nobody has liked this movie who's seen it, and most people haven't. But it's an odd mix. The Father, Mank, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. That's unembarrassing, uh, I guess. And then Best Musical Comedy is a little iffier. Borat, Hamilton, Palm Springs, Music, and The Prom. But not Meryl Streep who some people thought was the only good thing in the prom, but they did nominate James Corden, who many people thought was the worst thing in the prom. So as always, it just doesn't make any sense when it comes to the Golden Globes. And it doesn't really matter because they don't actually vote for the Oscars. Their influence is tangential at best. What matters more are nominations from the WGA and the PGA. They announced nominations, but they like to stretch it out now. So all we got from the WGA today were TV nominations. And from the PGA, all we got were documentary nominations. And there you'll find movies that I'm sure a number of these will be on the short list. David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet, Dick Johnson is Dead, My Octopus Teacher, Softy, A Thousand Cuts, Time, and The Truffle Hunters. So people are going to be pouring over this stuff. Wait, wait, you, you broke come. up there. Did you say The Truffle Hunters? I did indeed. Oh, well, yeah, no, that's a good movie. Also at Sundance last year, as was Minari. As was uh, as are a lot of these movies actually. Now that I'm looking at this list, that well, you it's have a here? year where there weren't there weren't a lot of movies released commercially. Sperling, <laughs> remember that's true. I, you know, think about it. Literally, Sundance last year was the first big. You know, the last big thing that happened in person. So you're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, Promising Young Woman was there as well. Nomadland wasn't, but Minari was. Uh, you know what's what's uh, interesting is last year at this time you told me I said should I go see this movie The Father with Anthony Hopkins and you were like no nah, I didn't like the play that it was based on and so I didn't see it and then you know what I will say though Michael and I told you this last year nobody was talking about that movie afterwards mm -hmm. no well you know it's got a a career capper performance from Anthony Hopkins. Perhaps people want to see it that way. Nominating it for Best Picture seems really iffy, at least based on the source material. I haven't seen the film, to be fair, but I can't imagine they improved it that much. But they got nominated for the Golden Globes. But when it comes to the Oscars, that doesn't matter so much. Right. Anthony Hopkins might well be in the mix, but there's a lot of good male performances this year. So a Golden Globe nomination, not such a big deal. But you get a nomination from the PGA for Best Doc. That's going to bring people's attention. That's going to make them say, gee, maybe I need to check that film out. Wait, I, can you go? You said PGA. I'm trying to. I, I'm unspo. I think you said big deal. Oh. Yes. That means it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. See, I have to every week, by the way, people, I have to listen really carefully because I never know when he's going to do that. I never know when Michael's going to say big deal. Stay uh, on your toes. Yes. So, Michael, uh, here's the question, and you're going to have to help me. 
because I don't actually watch this show, Game of Thrones, so I don't know how to pronounce one of these names. Are you a House Stark or House Targaryen? Targaryen. I am House Stark. Okay. I have no idea what that means, really. Uh, No matter which house you support in the Game of Thrones, I'm sure you'll be excited to hear that HBO is preparing... Another I'm not st- House Stark. I am the mother of dragons. Oh Sorry. my God. I've got no idea what that even means. Uh, th- so HBO doing another spinoff to the George R.R. R. Martin blockbuster series. First, they've got a live action House of the Dragon due out in 2022. Then there's talk of doing an adaptation of the Tales of Dunk and Egg. Also something, I've got no idea what that means. I literally could have just said nonsense to you. Uh, and now HBO Max is looking at doing an animated spinoff. But wait, there's more. A full set of steak not. No, just kidding. Uh, they're also uh, working on a TV version of Harry Potter. But wait, there's less. Wait, there's less? Give me back that steak knife. Uh, neither show has any talent attached or a script or really even an idea of what they would entail or, you know, who would make them. Uh, yeah. So uh, would the Harry Potter series retell the story of Harry Potter, maybe devoting one full season to each book, or would it follow new kids entering Hogwarts? Who knows? Big deal or big whoop? Well, that's why it's a big whoop. This stuff runs across the internet. A new Game of Thrones show. It's going to be animated. Well, not really. We have no idea. Talk to us when there's actual talent involved. Yeah. And I think the trades should do this as well. I don't know why. You know, they just want clicks, I guess. I have to be a little understanding, but it's ridiculous. You're reporting somebody had a thought that crossed their mind, and you're like, ah, headline. No, it's not. If Have someone attached. Have a director, a writer, a showrunner, a star. Have a concept. You know, what's the concept? We have no idea. So I think it's kind of lazy reporting. I don't think they should be giving it the attention that they kind of do. I know it just comes and goes very quickly, but it's dumb, and I wish they would stop. Well, yeah, to me, this was basically Warner Brothers looking across Burbank uh, at Walt Disney and and Walt Disney Studios and seeing what they were doing with Disney Plus. And, you know, they could have gotten jealous and said, wow, look at all those new shows and and movies they're doing. Uh, And instead, they they just decided, you know what, we can overexploit every intellectual property we own, too. We can do that. (laughs) So there. Batman Batman Jr. Batman, the early years. (laughs) So now they're both, you know, if you own a studio in Burbank, you're overexploiting your intellectual property over the next five years. Uh, Speaking of which, if you own a a subscription to Spotify, you've probably used it over at least once to listen to podcasts. The music streaming app Spotify had a remarkable 2020. Yeah. Thanks, COVID. The company hit 155 million premium subscribers worldwide by adding a record 30 million new paid listeners during the shutdown. Toss in everyone listening to Spotify for free with ads and the service reaches 345 million people worldwide. That's more than Netflix. The company also touted growth in podcasts. One out of four listeners listened to at least one podcast in the quarter and total hours listened doubled. So... Are they listening to us? I wonder. Big deal. They, should, they should be. Uh, it's a big deal. I mean, half of the people who listen to Spotify pay for the privilege. They really value the the premium level. And they're getting people to listen to more podcasts. And soon they're going to get them to listen to more audiobooks. It's a smart move because they have to pay less royalty. And maybe they can become profitable someday. What the heck? It's a crazy dream. 
You can be a crazy dream to be an agent, I guess, and it's gotten easier, hasn't it? You get to be an agent, and you get to be an agent, and you get to be an agent. No, it's not Oprah. It's new agent season. With half of their employees bolting to become managers, or so it seems, agencies are not being shy about taking their staff to the next level. ICM promoted 14 agents this week, including seven from 2020 and seven newly minted ones in 2021. CAA made news of its own. Rachel Rush was promoted to co-head of Motion Picture Talent. She's been with the company for a decade and reps James Corden, Trevor Noah, and Sasha Baron Cohen, most of whom seem like more like TV talent to me, but what do I know? You know the agency world, Sperling. Is this business as usual, or is this a big deal, or is it a big whoop? You know, usually this would happen in October, November timeframe. That's when they hand out annual bonuses um, at agencies. You know, agents mm-hmm. work for... It, it, their bonus comes at the end of the year, like October, November timeframe, and they get a steady paycheck throughout the rest of the year. Uh, this year, I think it's a little delayed. Uh, maybe they've moved it to the February, you know, January, February timeframe. I don't know, but basically we have a, a former co-host uh, of this show named Karen Woodward. And whenever somebody would get a, a new gig, uh, like, you know, get signed up to star in some movie, she would say man gets job. I would say in this case, people get job. In this case, people get jobs. It's so it's really, not about trying to keep them from becoming managers and bolting? No, I mean, you know, there's a kind of a steady flow of people coming out of the mailroom. Uh, maybe it's not seven every year, maybe it's four. And maybe, uh, yes, they're trying to prevent someone like Rachel Rush from going off and becoming a manager uh, and making her head of motion picture talent uh, when you're absolutely right, James Corden and Trevor Noah and Sasha, well, Sasha Baron Cohen, I guess you could say, does both movies and TV. Uh, you know, certainly this, it all makes sense. This is not, no. this is business as usual. Okay. So it's not about panicking over no. the managers. Okay. No, by the way, I would like to say uh, seven new spots opened up in the mailroom. The Warner Music Group is now a standalone company, and as such, it just set a new quarterly earnings record. Thanks to big gains in streaming, it saw a quarterly revenue of $1.335 billion for the fiscal quarter ending December 31st, 2020. Total revenue was up 6% or 4% if you adjust for inflation. Streaming. Well, that was up to 17.5%. Most every division of music was also up despite COVID. While the U.S. was up more than the rest of the world, it should be noted, big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. We know that it's a special year. We shouldn't be shocked and surprised if growth slows or even falls next year because they added up so many people to Spotify and to streaming and to premium subscription services like Netflix and Amazon. So, you know, let's keep 2021 in mind and not freak out if they don't grow as much or if they even fall, it will not be the end of the world. That a huge leap this year, got to keep it in context, but certainly action was happening in streaming after that early uh, stifling. You know, we, we thought music would explode, but people weren't commuting. They weren't going out. They weren't doing as many things as they could. So there weren't as many opportunities to stream. They weren't in their car a lot, but that rebounded and people signed up. They wanted to listen to it at home or while they were exercising. And, you know, the, the music companies made hay. We'll have to see how they do in 2021. I'm betting the people who liked it, listened to it, told their friends, and we're going to see more growth. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I don't necessarily, uh, yeah, I mean. I don't, th- I don't think they're done growing. 
Right. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, I would say you're right. If it goes down in, in 2021 a little bit and then it goes way up in 2022 or 2023, uh, you know, you're just looking for just like the, just like Wall Street, you're looking for growth over a longer period of time. That's, that's not Wall Street. Wall Street's a casino, dude. Anyway, keep going. Well, you know what I mean? Like, if you're in it for the long run, then. Right. Yeah, that ain't Wall Street. <laughs> you know, that's true. I found that out last week. Uh, not that I, I, you know, look. Yeah, anyway, I'm not going to get involved. You should have sold, I, I man. I told play you Wall to Street. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not a day trader. I, you know, I have the 401k like everybody, the IRA. I have no idea where it's at because, frankly, I don't pay attention to it on a day-to-day basis. My favorite cartoon was a cartoon that showed a guy from, it said, 1920 socialism. And he said, uh, we're going to have a revolution and seize the means of production. And then it said, socialism 2020, we're going to day trade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, uh, the, you know, the pandemic finally offers some good news, at least for those day traders, for all of about a week. Uh, in its latest measurement of scripted TV, the Disney-owned FX claims the total number of shows stands at 493, which is down some 7% from one year earlier when TV hit an all-time high of 532 scripted shows the sky is falling the sky is falling oh my <laughs> goodness uh so this is the first time the numbers have dropped in a decade yes peak tv is no longer peaking okay that's really what we're saying uh and since many of these shows are streaming and people may be watching them on their phones laptops and tablets it's no longer tv either but what? still you know yeah for everyone feeling overwhelmed by the crush of quality dramas comedies dramedies soaps late night shows and you know you name it you can breathe a little easier mind you next year when the pandemic is please dear god please i hope in the rearview mirror those numbers should head right back up big deal or big whoop i think it's a big deal i think they will head back up only because there's so many new services competing but then god willing there will be a new normal and we'll settle back down again because this just cannot last there's just too much damn content it's crazy and how do you measure who's watching what well in the world of cable and television where people still a lot of eyeballs are there a and e is doing something i'm thrilled about because i'm going to turn 55 soon they say we want to sell ads not based on the 18 to 49 demo or some other demo but just on total audience, the adults watching, the 18 plus. Come on, advertisers, they say. People who are 52 can be convinced to buy new products too. I agree. The idea that you stop changing things or buying new things when you're 49 and 50 is silly. And yes, maybe you don't want an audience that's average age of 84. Sorry, people who are 84 and over. But, you know, 52, 55, that ain't old anymore. So, you're, you know, people live into their 70s, 80s, and 90s. So, come on. I think it's a long overdue mood. We'll have to see if they succeed. And with programmatic advertising, uh, I might pay a little more to advertise to people that I know are a certain age. In other words, I know the viewers. Well, they do that. They do that now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that you know, with streaming, uh, what you're seeing is campaigns where they say, "Okay, I will pay. Uh, I'm not going to buy the show. I'm going to buy the demographic. Put it on those shows." You mean for places like Peacock where they have ads? Correct. Yes. Yes. They, yes. Don't, they don't have ads on Netflix. Yes. Correct. For so we're for getting people, a little in, we're getting a little inside baseball, aren't we? Oh yes, we are. Actually, that is inside baseball. In fact, it it is also about streaming. And in fact, it is time for inside baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business, and more importantly, how they affect you. Here's how I, I got I, it. 
I well, got it. I let got me it. Explain how our stories will ex- affect our listeners first. In case you weren't aware, you will be streaming content moving forward, not necessarily buying CDs and DVDs. <laughs> well, that's, they've known that Take for a decade. Thanks yeah. for the headline. That's right. <laughs> so we've got some totals for streaming services. Uh, oh, hell, I forgot to look up Hulu. You look up, up how many people Hulu has. They have both an ad level and a premium level. See if you can find that out. Go to Wikipedia, and I will tell you that Peacock has announced they've had 33 million signups worldwide. Plus, Sky is their present throughout much of Europe, their presence. That's how Peacock is in, in, in Europe, and that's doing very well as well. The, 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 the people behind Peacock said, oh, you know, Sky is our landmark in Europe. That's doing great, too. But worldwide, Peacock has 33 million people signed up, including me. HBO and HBO Max, the total of that is 61 million subscriptions worldwide, all paying. And they're up 4 million from the third quarter. Amazon Prime has a bunch of people, but you know, you're playing for shipping and a bunch of other stuff. So it doesn't quite trend or match what the other people are doing. It's much more, well, it's not that expensive compared to a whole year of Netflix, is it? But it's kind of a different game. But you know what? They got a lot of nominations at the Golden Globes, so they matter too. Netflix, they're at 200 million paying subscribers worldwide. Uh, where's Disney Plus on here? Disney Plus is at, where are they at now? They're at, uh, they're like 80, in the eight. 83 million? million 83 million yes and of course 83 they, yes i'm like is that where they're at yeah they're at 83 86 million people they probably signed up another million while we've been talking right now they are at 86.8 million subscribers out of as of the end of 2020 so they're at 86 million subscribers they're probably at 87 now so uh, there's a lot of competition a lot of people are signing up and a lot of money to be made and that's why there's all these shows being made everybody wants to be that must have service i think netflix is still there no one's saying well i got hbo i don't need netflix or i've got disney i don't feed netflix they're just saying i want to slim down on my cable bill maybe i'll go over the top maybe i'll just cut a couple tiers but i'll add in netflix and disney plus or and maybe, maybe hulu Peacock. yeah or, or maybe hulu, hulu. Do, do you know where they're at so they are at, at least in the U.S., keep in mind, I don't know that Hulu is available everywhere. I don't think it is. Uh, they have 36.6 or 38.8 million uh, subscribers, depending on who you ask. Now, they call those paid subscribers. So, And there is some question about, well, how many of them are premium subscribers? But most of their plans are, are paid at this point. There's you know, the odd, uh, you, know, you can watch certain shows for free with, with advertising. And how many people in the U.S. do you think have Disney Plus or Peacock or HBO Max a good or portion. Hulu and don't have Netflix? Uh, not the, the, the differential there, I don't think, is, is wide. I think that most no. people have Netflix. That's the baseline. You have Netflix. Yeah. And if you have Netflix, it's like a gateway streaming uh, service. You know, how far are you going to go? Are you going to do the full Max? You're going to go HBO Max? Oh, my God. Are you going to do the Disney Plus, too? Are you going to do the Disney Plus? And that's not everything, of course, because there's also YouTube. They have a lot of content. Their ad revenue went up 46% to $6.9 billion. That's during the shutdown. That's during 2020, of course. But keep in mind, it's also with all this increased competition for eyeballs. Netflix, Disney Plus, Peacock, that hasn't stopped YouTube from growing hand over fist. They're a slightly different 
world, the content that they're providing, music videos, short form sketches from Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon and whatever. So, you know, they play a slightly different game, though they have had original content before, but they're growing too. So all these areas are growing. Cable TV is slimming down. That's because there's real competition now and people feel like they can get value for their money and have a ton of stuff to watch without paying $180 a month for their cable bill, which does include Wi-Fi. But still. By the way, I think that trying to figure out whether a show is popular or not by looking at how many minutes are viewed of it or streamed, just I've always thought this was a bad idea. I've never liked it for some reason. It's always irked me, and I figured out why this past week. Oh, do tell. Well, Wonder Woman is pretty long, right? It's like two hours, 15 minutes, two hours, 20 minutes. So if you're going to yeah. watch the full thing, right, then, then it's you're going to be longer than, say, if you watched, I don't know, off the top of my head, Soul, right, which is shorter. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, a 90-minute movie. So, of course, the week of Christmas, Christmas week, which is where we're at right now, the streaming chart, Wonder Woman 1984, had 2.3 billion minutes viewed and was at the top of the charts, beating out Soul which had 1.7 billion minutes viewed. What I want to know is how many people watched it? Because it might be more people watching Soul than watching Wonder Woman 1984. It's just that Wonder Woman 1984 is longer, and thus more minutes were viewed. Right, so it, it's 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 more people probably watch Soul if we assume everybody who watched each movie watched it in you know the entire film. If you just map it out, because Wonder, Wonder Woman 1984 is significantly longer, that means, yeah. More people still watch Soul, but a, both, a lot of people watch both. And the metric there is really also when you're talking about comparing a movie to a TV series. Then you've got maybe eight episodes of The Crown, and you've got you know 400 episodes of The Office. Like, oh, more people watch The Office. Well, there's a lot more content. Nonetheless, I think the minutes watched is a useful metric, especially when you're looking at TV shows and you're looking at the fact that people aren't watching the new thing every time. Sometimes they're binge watching a whole series. So why not recognize that? I think it's a useful metric, but yeah, when you're looking at a movie, you want to convert that and say, well, okay, that doesn't mean Soul wasn't popular. It probably was more popular. More people could have watched Soul and it still wouldn't have as many minutes as Wonder Woman because of it's 35 or 40 minutes long or something like that. So you're right. That's a good point to make, but I think it's still useful. And we know HBO Max thought it was useful because they opened up their books and they said, hey, 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 I know you didn't include us on your chart, Nielsen, but look at all these numbers here. And they they opened the books and let Nielsen look and confirm that Wonder Woman you know, churned up 2.3 billion minutes. You know why? Because it's useful to be on the charts. People talk about wanting to withhold box office grosses and hold them back or not share them or maybe don't give them at all or, oh, what if it's not good news? It's like, don't be idiots. You've used the box office charts as a great, powerful metric for you know how many years? It's probably been the early 80s with USA Today that the top box office chart has been a really great ad for movie going. It's also been really great for television. Seinfeld moved up into the top 40. Suddenly you realize the show's becoming a hit and your friends are talking about it. People write more stories about it. People start to watch it. It's good to be on these charts. So go and cooperate with Nielsen Netflix. Make sure they have open access and can verify facts that we want because the more you can promote your shows, the better you can do it. They're trying to do it on their own and they're getting cute. So what they said was Bridgerton, they said with big fanfare, Bridgerton is our most popular show ever. 
You know what their they most said, popular show is ever on Netflix? Whatever, whatever show is, is on now. That's like whatever their new show is. Well, what they said was it's more than 82 million households around the world watched this soapy drama in its first 30 days on the air. It's been renewed for season two. And that means, yes, you know, it's done very well. We've said we don't want to talk about Netflix's numbers because they're so wishy-washy. If if a show automatically plays for 30 seconds, that counts as a view of the entire series. Now, it only gives them a minute. So to your point, Sperling, people are tricked into watching 30 seconds of it. Yeah, it counts as a view, but it means it was sampled by one household. And it doesn't mean they watched it. And that's reflecting the fact that, you know, if it's getting billions of views and minutes, that means people are actually watching it. They're not just being tricked into sampling it. But what Netflix told us was that this show was its most popular out-of-the-box sampled show, meaning in the first 30 days, a lot of people, intentionally or not, watched at least a minute of Bridgerton. And that's great, but that's not your most popular show ever. That would be where you said, okay, the run of this show, 47 million households watched the entire series, or they sampled 80% of it, or whatever metric you want to decide upon that's fair. And you would say, okay, they actually watched the entire series every episode, or they watched 80% of it. That would count to me as like they really watched that show. And that would tell me, yeah, they saw it, they loved it, and they sampled it, and they kept going. But they watched a minute of it, 82 million households. Maybe they all watched 30 seconds and went home. We know that's not true, but it's BS to say this is their most popular show ever. It's an out-of-the-box hit. It got sampled. And we also know Netflix is promoting it. Every time you turn on Netflix, it's at the top of the page, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bridgerton, Bridgerton. So yeah, they're promoting it. They're pushing it. It had a great opening weekend. That's kind of what the, the comparison is. We, we know people are watching it because of the number of minutes that have been racked up. So we know they're actually actually consuming episodes. We don't know how much or if people got bored after three episodes or, you know, is it a 20% of the people have watched it five times over and over? Or is it out of those 82 million households, 60 million of them actually watched, you know, five of the or six of the eight episodes? You, we you don't know when know. a show is a hit when you watch yeah. the entire series. And then run out and buy a chess set. That's when you know a show is a hit. <laughs> Thank you, the Queen's Gambit. So yes. yeah, so we we took we we took issue with that, and that's annoying. So uh, you know, it's 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 misleading. Nobody should have repeated their BS that it's their most popular show ever. It's not. They haven't proven that by any stretch of the imagination. All they all they can tell us or claim is that it was sampled very quickly by a lot of people around the world. And if you go back. When you talk about your comparison to Soul and Wonder Woman, if you go back to Stranger Things and some other shows, they've had an equal or bigger percentage of the available audience sample their show at that stage in Netflix's career. They have now have 200 million households around the world, more opportunities for people to sample the show intentionally or not. So yeah, it's always useful to say, hey, back then there were only 130 million households. So actually, that show was more popular for the people who could watch it. You know, so we would love real numbers and promoting shows and showing people what's actually being watched is a very powerful ad. And you're foolish not to cooperate with Nielsen, all of you, to make sure there's somebody independent with authority who can give us numbers we can use. Right now, they're putting out wishy-washy press releases with a lot of BS and people shouldn't fall for it. But we did miss one story. It's the top streamers of 2020. I don't know how I missed it. And again, these numbers are not including HBO Max, Amazon Prime, and others. But we're working with what we have. They've got a list there of like most popular original series, most popular new series. It's interesting. It's cool. You should check it out. We got a link in our show notes.
Yeah, I wonder how many people watched Saved by the Bell. A lot. You that was a big that show, that's been Saved doing, by the that's Bell. That's been doing, been doing very well. <gasps> by the way, welcome to our new podcast. It's This Week in Death. We're going to have a weekly podcast devoted just yeah, to obituaries. I mean, Sorry. Sperling's pulling out what little I'm, hair he has left going, for the love of God, why are we spending half our show talking about dead people? I think it would be a good podcast. <laughs> you could do people from all over, you know, the coolest, most interesting obituaries, the interesting people, the little tidbits that they have. Maybe you speak to an obituary writer about, you know, writing that thing and we highlight the best written obit of the week or the most interesting life that you may not have heard about. I think it's kind of a cool idea. Maybe we should do it. You know what? We could be the dead people. I see dead people. <laughs> the dead people. Oh, that is, hold on. I'm writing that down. Write that down. All right. That's a dead people. Okay. The dead people or dead people. Yeah. yeah. It's not okay, a so I, I, we'll, we'll have in the notebook. It's not in the idea notebook on page 428, by the way. So <laughs> that's but, right. So yes, saved by the bell was a big hit for Peacock. They've renewed it for another season. A lot of people have been watching that new reboot of a classic classic of a very popular franchise. And uh, actor Dustin Diamond, who played Screech, kind of the nerdy guy on uh, on Saved by the Bell, he died at the age of 44. Uh, he had, um, I guess, he had lung cancer, and he had the kind of lung cancer that, uh, uh, what was the, the person from Taxi who died? Uh, I'm Andy, oh Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman. It's the same type of cancer that Andy Kaufman had, where it goes very, very quickly. Well, Justin Diamond is known forever as Screech, a role he played for more than 13 years on various iterations of the show. He was not part of the reboot, thanks to uh, some issues. He created a self-produced sex tape. He was arrested in a bar brawl after stabbing someone in the shoulder with a switchblade. Who has a switchblade? And then he authored a tell-all book about Saved by the Bell that dished the dirt on his co-stars. But you know, all was kind of forgiven. You could see people being annoyed or, but still his family, you know, they had this huge bond from this phenomenon. And that original show was a phenomenon. Uh, it was a series where the main cast almost all enjoyed substantial success right up to this day, including Mario Lopez and Mark Paul Gosler and Elizabeth Berkeley and Tiffany Amber Tice. I mean, really uh, another remarkable cast. Uh, Dustin Diamond was the one that never quite found a new niche after the show ended, but you know, people were always happy to see him. He was hospitalized for pain after shingles. Cancer was discovered, and it spread rapidly in like three weeks and took his life. So this all happened within the last three weeks. So a sad thing to die at 44, but, you know, he's, he's part of pop culture history. And I'll tell you, part of history, if we were doing uh, the dead people or dead people or I see dead people, well, you know, whatever the sh we name it, I would say we would definitely be devoting an entire show to Cicely Tyson. Well, I don't know if we could come up with enough to, to make one person the entire focus. I think the idea would be to grab people from all sorts of different areas of life and make them interesting to people, but they would certainly know her. She died at the age of 96. She's an Emmy and Tony winner who did very important good work on stage, screen, and TV. She played hundreds of roles, but she's just as well known for turning down a lot of roles because she said very early on in her career, I'm not going to play demeaning roles. I want characters who are complex and dignified, and she played prostitutes off-Broadway. I mean, it's not that she said everyone she played had to be a saint, though she certainly had that about her, you know, real uh, strong integrity, but she wasn't going to play some nameless maid just to get a check. And she had a lifetime of achievement from the film Sounder in 1972, 
which got her an Oscar nomination, to an Emmy win for the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. I remember that show very well when I was a kid. It was a, a big blockbuster TV movie, and she won a Tony for her revival of The Trip to Bountiful, a role originally written, written or written for a white woman. Uh, you know, Miss Jane Pittman was big. She played a woman over nine decades of her life. It really blew people away, her performance. She was the first black woman to win the lead actress Emmy. Uh, one person, I forget who, said she was our Meryl Streep, an actress of color. She was a model, an activist. She had a list of credits as long, of, as long as your arm. The first black woman with a recurring role on a primetime drama. The mother of Kunta Kinte in Roots. The women of Brewster Place. She was on How to Get Away with Murder late in her career. Uh, you know, early in her career, she starred in the smash off-Broadway hit The Blacks alongside James Earl Jones in 1961. Fifty-five years later, she and James Earl Jones starred on Broadway in The Gin Game. That's a hell of a career. Yeah, well, and, you know, the first thing she asked when they started rehearsals for The Gin Game was, have you solved your breathing problem? <laughs> what? <laughs> Because oh, he plays oh, Darth Vader. Lord, oh, Lord Almighty. Do you, you don't even know who Sophie Literally, is. Literally, Lord Vader. That's that's what you mean. By the way, I actually, you know, we took we we started this this whole obituary run with uh people that we had a, a relationship with or had some kind of story about. Something unique to say, yes. Some personal insight. And I can well, remember being I, a kid and watching the autobiography of Miss Jane Pippen. I remember that vividly at the end of the movie when she spits in the little white lady's water glass. I was like, ooh. <laughs> oh, she's not so happy having been a slave. You're not like family to her. Good to know. Well, you know, I uh, when I was coming up in the agency world, uh, I was on the team that represented Cicely Tyson. And by on the team, I mean, you know, they have a lead agent and then they're like, but who's really going to do the work? <laughs> Let the seven new promoted agents do the work. <laughs> uh, and so did you have I, any interaction with her? Oh God, Yeah, all the time. And I would send her stuff and she'd be like, no, 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 no. And she'd come <laughs> to LA and I'd get, set up a meeting. And then, you know, I was like, okay, you're the hardest client I have. I can't get you a job. I can't get you arrested. Get me some good work, kid. <laughs> exactly. Did you I ever hook so her up bad. with some good material? I I believe I did, but it you know she wasn't working that much at the time, and I always wanted to ask her about Miles Davis, but never got the gumption. Oh up to no, 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 no. That I don't. That was a complicated, unhappy relationship. So I, don't I think didn't that know that at the time. I didn't know that at the time, and I'm so glad I never did. <laughs> I never asked her. Well, I, I've never heard of pop producer Sophie, though I've heard her music. This is a transgender trailblazer in the music world. They died at the age of 34. Uh, Sophie broke out as an artist with a string of singles and a debut album that scored a Grammy nomination for Best Dance Electronic Album in 2018. So this is a really new talent who burst onto the scene and then got courted by a lot of different artists who loved the sound. Uh, Sophie worked with Madonna on Bitch, I'm Madonna. A great song. Also worked with Charlie XS, rapper Vince Staples, Cam Petras, and many others. Tragically, this is very odd. She seems to have climbed a tree so she could view a full moon and simply fell out of it and to her death. So a really tragic, silly, unnecessary accident. It's a it's a heartbreaking. But you know, they made a mark before they died. Somebody Just, who really made a mark mm -hmm. was Jamie Tarsus. Yeah. She's she died. A big, 
Yeah. Yeah. She died at the age of 56. She had a cardiac event last fall and has been in a coma ever since until she died. She's TV royalty in a way. She's the daughter of Jay Tarsus, the creator of The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, a great show that we'll never get to see because of music rights and Buffalo Bill, among others. And she broke the glass ceiling in TV when she became the first woman to head a network entertainment division, doing so at ABC. She did great work at NBC. And then she left ABC in better shape than when she arrived, and she continued to succeed as a producer on her own. She was a key player in developing Friends, Frasier, News Radio, and Mad About You. She headed to ABC at the age of 32. There, she developed Dharma and Greg, Two Guys and a Girl, and a Pizza Place at one point, The Practice, There's Your Kaching, and Sports Night. She had a three-year reign. It ended in 1999. Some of the nonsense you saw with women in the early days. Her first year when the network was not doing well in the ratings, those were for shows she didn't develop. <laughs> she had yeah. all this grief. And they were so flipped out that she was a woman. And there was a big article in one of the papers that followed her around. And <gasps> she had elbows. And she used them. And she wasn't some nice, sweet little thing. She was like every other damn male executive. But they acted like this was, oh, my God. And there was just a scrum to follow her at that annual event where the media meets with the network execs. And it was treated as just... This the TCAs, you mean the, the Television Critics yeah. Association meetings? Right. Yeah. The idea that she was a woman. Oh, my God. But, you know, and you saw other people follow follow after her. Susan Line from my magazine premiere did a great job at ABC. And the show she launched did great, but they kicked her out before those shows even really caught fire. So the sad thing is she never regained consciousness since her cardiac event. So she never celebrated her latest successes. She'd done stuff that made money, but not with that quality aura that she had early on. But The Wilds debuted on Amazon Prime and immediately received a season two renewal, while The Mysterious Benedict Society, based on a well-known young adult series, that's getting great advanced buzz and got bumped up from Hulu to Disney Plus. I shouldn't say bumped up, but let's just say Disney Plus said. Disney's going to call us. Yeah. Disney Plus said, we think this family-friendly show is a perfect fit for Disney Plus, and we want it there. And I think it is a better fit there. And that's, you know, this is, she was at a new peak. So really a shame to see. Well, you know, I, when, when these next two people, yeah, when these, I, I thought, oh, that we're, that our obituary section is going to be an hour long this week, because it was one after the other. And then, you know, Hal Holbrook, when I read that, I thought, oh. Not only is it bad that he's passed away, but but now he's going to be he's going to make the show. (laughs) You know, he got four time Emmy winner, lots of great stuff. Emmy nominations, Emmy wins. I remember in the 70s when he played a dad coming out to his son, Martin Sheen, in the TV movie That Certain Summer. He was a guy with just a lot of integrity. He could have played Atticus Finch instead of Gregory Peck. He's that kind of actor. Decades later, after playing Martin Sheen's dad, he played on The West Wing. So he had a great long career. He was the dad of Burt Reynolds on the sitcom Evening Shade. He was uh, Oscar nominated for Into the Wild, making him at the time the oldest actor to receive such recognition. He played Lincoln a number of times in a number of TV properties. He played Deep Throat in one of the best films of all time, All the President's Men. And he was a lone voice of ethical concern in Oliver Stone's Wall Street. But Michael Douglas had the fun line, so he got the Oscar nomination. He was married for three times, but it stuck when he married actress Dixie Carter. They were married for 26 years until her death in 2010. But that's not what he's remembered for. That would be enough. But like uh, actors from like the 1800s, Hal Holbrook is best known for one role that he played 
over and over and over again all over the world. It was his meal ticket, Mark Twain. He did it in a one-man show. He created it himself in the 1950s called Mark Twain Tonight. He won the Tony for his performance in 1966, came back to Broadway in the 70s, came back to Broadway in the 2000s. It was recorded by Columbia Records as a cast album. That doesn't happen for one-man shows, but it happened for him. He played it 2,000 times all over the world. And he'll always be how you know Mark Twain. A very interesting career, and he died at the age of 95. Cloris Leachman, I'm sorry. I could go on for days. One of my favorite actors. One of the best performances you'll ever see in The Last Picture Show. 22 Emmy nominations, 9 Emmy Awards in all sorts of categories. TV movies, dramas, sitcoms, variety shows, specials, and kids programming. She won the Oscar for The Last Picture Show. She also had a great early role in Kiss Me Deadly. And everything from a small part in Butch casting the Sundance Kid to voice work on Beavis and Butthead. But remembered forever for being part of the Marilyn Tyler Moore Show, one of the best sitcoms of all time. She also played Frau Blucher <laughs> in the Mel Brooks classic Young Frankenstein and appeared in other comedies directed by him. Uh, she was a Miss America contestant. She became friends in college with Paul Lynn and Charlotte Ray, who she eventually replaced on The Facts of Life. She was on Broadway in South Pacific and played opposite Katherine Hepburn in As You Like It. Great career from the 40s to, to today, really. She was the voice of Grand in the Croods, a new age. She was Mama in Raising Hope, her final Emmy nod. She appeared on TV every decade from the 40s to the 2010s, including one of the best Twilight Zone episodes of them all, It's a Good Life with Billy Mummy as a creepy little kid who holds a small town in his power. What a great, interesting career. And she was a lot of fun to talk to. And uh, there is Steve Lanza, a, you know, a friend of mine who's an actor. Uh, he put on on uh, I can't remember what film he was working on, but they were at the Biltmore Hotel, and uh, I guess she was, which is a very big hotel here in, in Los Angeles. Uh, and there was a scene in one ballroom, but she was out with all of the the, the extras and the the uh, the atmosphere actors, and there was a grand piano in. The, the room uh, or in the hallway, really. Uh, and she sat down and started playing, but not just playing, but tearing up the, I mean, the way yeah. he went on and on about how great she was. And so uh, along comes the AD bursting out of the, the ballroom and says, come on, who's doing that? Who's playing the piano? I, we're trying to record. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> And that would be Oscar and Emmy winner, Cloris Leachman. <laughs> yeah, and so he, and she, she finished her her thing got a standing ovation and filming went on. <laughs> Speaking of the Mary Tyler Moore show, we should note the death of producer, writer, and Oscar nominee Alan Burns. He died at the age of 85. He helped create offbeat hits like The Monsters, which was stolen from him and his writing partner, but they won a WGA arbitration and got proper credit. And they made the notorious flop My Mother, The Car. He also scored an Oscar nomination for writing the screenplay to A Little Romance, a delightful film with a young Diane Lane and Laurence Olivier. Check it out when it's on TCM. His early break was working for Jay Ward on the animated shows Rocking His Friends and The Bullwinkle Show. He invented the Captain Crunch serial character. He co-created the cartoon character Dudley Do-Right. He won an Emmy. He gave Jim Carrey a big break, but his pay dirt was partnering with James L. Brooks, leading to a credit as co-creator on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Rhoda, Phyllis with Cloris Leachman, and Lou Grant, which bizarrely turned a comic character on a sitcom into the lead of a drama, and it worked. That's a tombstone right there. Five more Emmys for Mary Tyler Moore alone. I think he won eight in all. 
He made one of the best sitcoms of all time, and he made one of the worst sitcoms of all time. And I love this. He applied for a job as an NBC page. He this got must have been very job. early in his career because that's yeah, like- you know, Of course, of course, yeah, yeah, of course yeah. it was. Everybody understands that. Mailroom page, that's the bottom of the ladder. He's a nobody. He showed up. He applied for it to be a page. He interviewed. He got the job. And he said, well, hey, tell me, can you tell me, what did I say? What helped me get the job? And the guy said, you told me you were a 42 long and that's the only size uniform we got left, kid. <laughs> he said, I'm only, <laughs> I only had a Hollywood career because I'm a 42 long. <laughs> that should have been the name of his production company 42 long <laughs> exactly and we've been long but god bless you and thank you for staying with us you can call and write us can't they sperling yes uh you know look we had sundance we had the the, the golden they, globe we had they, so they much going on they heard it all yeah but you know what our next show you can probably find and this show by the way you can find on itunes the google store whatever spotify the google, spotify that's true microsoft marketplace stitcher Anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can rate and review the show uh, on those aggregators. It helps us out when you do, so please do that. You can find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as ways to contact us, as Michael just mentioned, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter. Our handle is at Showbiz Sandbox. We're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's RentTheLastPictureShow.com. Oh, that's a really good movie. Yeah, it's a really good movie. Uh, You know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. My work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 